Hello and welcome to The Advance, conversations about news and the Mid-America Union Conference of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. I'm Pablo Colindres, Digital Media Manager at the MAUC. This week, I chat with Dr. William Johnson, author and former editor of the Adventist Review. We discuss his book, Where Are We Headed? Adventism After San Antonio, the choices the church has ahead, and how it can remain relevant. We also talk about hope and ways the new generations are shaping our future. My name is William Johnson. To my friends, I'm Bill Johnson, and um, I'm retired happily in Loma Linda. And uh, with my wife, where I enjoy gardening and walking and uh, writing and uh, a surprising number of speaking appointments, enjoying life. My wife and I have done many things during our ministry, which lasts, lasted more than 50 years. Uh, we were missionaries. I uh, was a teacher at the seminary at Andrews University. Um, I was a teacher at um, Spicer College in India. Mm-hmm. And then uh, we went to the Adventist Review, where I became editor-in-chief and was in that post for 24 years. After I left that post, in partial retirement, I worked under General Conference President, Dr. Paulson, to um, interface with non-Christian leaders, leaders of Islam and so on. That's what I uh, undertook for the last uh, seven years after I left the review. Okay. Uh, Loma Linda, I've been doing a little teaching, um, decided it's time to hang up that hat and uh, just uh, focus on, on writing. Okay. So uh, I can say life is good, God <laughs> is good and great. That's good, yeah. Um, and yeah, and you mentioned a couple things I want to touch on later on in the interview, um, including your, uh, your work with the interfaith community. Uh, but first of all, I just wanted to uh, go right off the, the bat here and say, uh, that I really enjoyed your book. Um, it, it, it seems timely and everything. Uh, you call your book in the beginning your Isaac. Uh, can you explain that real quick? Yeah. Well, you know, Isaac was the son of Abraham's old age. Mm-hmm. He was, I don't know, nearly 100 when Isaac came along after many years of waiting. Well, the parallel with me is not, not exact. I'm not as old, but I am in my 80s, and uh, we already have a son from a number of years back. But this book, in a sense, is my Isaac in it. It's a child of my old age. Um, Mm -hmm. I've been writing all along, but this book is, uh, is a different book. It is a little edgy in some ways, and um it's something that uh, I wrote instead of just um, enjoying my garden and uh, watching the roses grow. I wrote this book, and uh, and I believe the Lord was in it and guided it. It has had an amazing reception 
more than anything I've ever written. And so it's sort of my Isaac. Got it. Okay. Um, and usually uh, books take a while to write, but this uh, just has this uh, a feel to it, like almost as a, a stream of consciousness, as if you were writing this as uh, it came to mind. Uh, can you tell me what the process was in, in writing this book? Yeah. Well, um, I've written over the years a lot of books, maybe close to 30 or more. Um, I tend to think quite a while if I start to write, and then usually the writing process comes pretty fast. Mm -hmm. This one was quite different. It did not start out to be a book. Okay. Remember that. Very important. It did not start out to be a book. Initially, and the first chapter, which is the first chapter in the book on the women's uh, issues, mm -hmm. that that was something that I wrote basically to get it out of my gut, out of my system. Right. I was not present at the San Antonio General Conference session, um, but I followed it and uh, especially followed the day when uh, the role of women was discussed. Right. And that day in particular uh, upset me. Not mm -hmm. a word for it. In fact, it profoundly disturbed me. And um, a couple of weeks after that session ended, I moped around the house, uh, made life <laughs> unpleasant for my sweet wife, and uh, uh, sort of muttering to myself, what is going on in this church? Mm -hmm. And uh, eventually decided, hey, write something. This is the way I express myself. I, I don't play any musical instrument, don't sing very well, but I write. I'm a compulsive writer. So <laughs> I decided to sit down and write something, which okay. I did. And uh, I wrote that chapter on women's issues. It was not intended to be part of a book. I really had no particular purpose or goal or plan of distribution. This was just you when venting, out, basically. Okay. What's that? So you were just venting, basically, on that, the first yeah, couple chapters. You say, yeah. yeah, you could say that. And uh, I, um, after I was out, I thought, well, maybe um, I could send this to some of my friends, and especially women in ministry. Um, but then uh, an interesting thing happened. Um, while I was writing that book and then afterwards, and I, 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 writing that first chapter, uh, which, which came very fast because it mm -hmm. came straight out of me. Um, right. Uh, well, I began to hear from people who had been at the session and uh, giving other aspects, and I began to think, hey, maybe there's more I should write. And I wasn't sure whether I really wanted to go that direction of a book. But I tried my hand at another chapter. It came real fast. And then hmm. The ideas just kept rolling in, rolling in. And I kept <laughs> on writing. And uh, without really planning to, I had a book. It reads easily because, mm -hmm, yes. um, because, you know, that's the way it was written. It just came out. Uh, I, over the years, I've thought 
personally that the faster I write, the better the writing is, the better it communicates. And right. maybe that's what happened to this one. Yeah, it reads almost as a conversation you're having with the reader. And so that, yes. like you said, makes it an easy, easy read for one because uh, it's almost like you're just talking to me about all the all the issues and 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 the solutions that you post up. That, that it's all very natural to uh, yeah. to the book. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, so I, I just wanted to dive into uh, what the book, uh, the meat of the book. First of all, I guess we could start at the beginning there. Um, the the San Antonio session was is a lot of times I hear it compared to the eighteen eighty eight session. Uh, yeah. In what ways is it similar, and in what ways is it not the same well, as the eighteen eighty eight? Other than, of course, yeah. to what was being debated. Yeah, well, um, that is my thought on it. Uh, others may agree or may disagree. Uh, the 1888 session was a very important one. You know, it was historic. It was a turning point. Um, and you might say that the thesis of my book, um, where we headed as it developed, it um, suggested that San Antonio was another turning point in the history of this church. Right. Not only because of the way in which the women's question was dealt with, but because there it seemed like two versions of what Seventh-day Adventism is all about. Two versions sort of came into sharp focus. They've been around for years developing. It's like when we have two parallel tracks, and maybe there are more than two, sure there are, but two in particular. Will we be a church, for instance, apart from women and the place to give them in ministry? Will we be a church that's essentially open to the world and to society? Will we be involved with society? Right. And so uh, in chapter after chapter, I sort of looked at the two possibilities in various areas before us. For instance, mm -hmm. In um, science, we are creationists, and I'm a creationist. I don't believe in evolution. But will we be open to scientific discovery? Right. Or will we say, no, science only leads to uh, all sorts of problems for us doctrinally, so we'll uh, shut our eyes and our ears mm -hmm. to what is happening out there. These are the sort of alternatives that I see before the seven days in the church today. And uh, yeah. it's, it's almost, I, I, I think you do a really good job of, uh, like you said, posing the 2015 session as the thesis statement of something that's been building up for a long time, really. I think it's, it's uh, our, um, I guess, our approach to the world and, uh, you know, science and other social issues it just kind of all came to a head then, and it's kind of um, going to define really how we go from here in relating to all these issues, right? Right, right, exactly. That, it hit me, I don't know how early it hit me, uh, the parallels with 1888. They're not exact parallels, of course they're not, but they are um, 
I think they're important parallels. Parallels in the sense of turning point, tipping point, if you like. Now, 1888, right. the tipping point, two Adventisms. The old Adventism, represented by uh, George Butler and Eli uh, Smith and other leaders, was one that focused on law, obedience and law. Mm-hmm. The new Adventism, coming out of 1888, was one that was spearheaded by the young preachers Wagner and Jones and encouraged by Ellen White. And this new Adventism emphasized righteousness by faith. Righteousness not by keeping the law, the law is important, but our righteousness before God is not because of anything we do. It is a gift of God. It is his mm-hmm. grace. So you had those two Adventisms, and the fight was very bitter in, in right. Minneapolis. And Ellen White said later, it was the toughest time in all her experience. She was publicly rejected in Minneapolis. Uh, but eventually, of course, that message that she and Wagner and Jones had uh, a spouse, that message gradually took over uh, over the old. The old did not go away completely. In fact, it's not totally gone today. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, you know, it was a new course. It's a tipping point. Right. And, and, you know, it's very interesting that following 1888, in the years following, and I mean immediately following, in the 1890s and then early in the 20s, 20th century, if you like, the new Adventism really spread in wonderful ways. It spread in mission fields. We established mm-hmm. college after college across North America. You know, we were still a small people, not only, not even 100,000 members, but right. we established all these colleges in just a space of 10 years or so. So it was a stove. Um, the message, that, that tipping point sort of released wonderful energy and creativity and right. the spirit work among us. I suppose in that way that, uh, you're, that's why you're, one of your last chapters is called Changes, right? The changes that are coming. Um, and, and you explain that, uh, maybe because of, you know, the way that the church reacted after 1888, this is the same thing that's going to happen after 2015. Um, and, and you explained that, you know, in 10 years or so, it, some of the issues that we're talk, talking about now, we're, we're going to look back on them and, and, and almost disbelief, right? We're not going to uh, think that, why, we're, we're going to be surprised at what were issues then. Do you think that the debate is over. I we get letters here often from readers uh, who, you know, argue that we should just accept what was uh, what was said at the session and move on. Uh, you know, as, as if it's a done deal. Do you think that this debate is over? Well, you know, that statement is sort of um, it's an overstatement deliberately right. in order to make a point. Uh, the debate is not over in terms of people disagreeing and arguing. It's not. And that, if I could go on, who knows how long. But I think 
we've we've uh, turned a corner, okay, a tipping point. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't I don't see the Adventist Church going back, um, going back on the role of women in ministry. No, um, it cannot go back. If if you want to roll back that, and some people do, then the next step is roll back women in all positions of leadership. Logically follows. No more women elders, okay? And logically, you should not permit women to have any role, public role, in the church service. That of the church would collapse. It would collapse. Without women. All along, women are the backbone of this church. They occupy roles that are not, don't bring a lot of glory with them. I mean, they care for the children. Uh, Mm -hmm. They're involved in so many, so many uh, deeds that hold this church together. So when I say the debate is over, I think it is, it's over in the sense that the arguments are clear. The arguments, I think, the arguments that oppose women in ministry are shown to be bogus. They're simply not, mm. not true. And so I'm a great believer that in the long run, truth wins the day. And that's why, in that sense, it's over. Okay. And right. um, there'll still be people, you'll get letters, and there'll be people who uh, will have call together groups and have meetings and so on. Uh, but for me, they are trying to hold back the dawn. You right. can't hold back the dawn. <laughs> the dawn has started more and more. And I'll, I'll tell you something else. Um, okay. uh, unless we go forward in this, especially in North America and in um Western Europe and in uh, the South Pacific, Australia, New Zealand, we really have no future. This church is going to die. Sorry to say mm-hmm. that, but I think it's true. Uh, can I just share a book that I read just over Christmas? Yeah. Uh, my wife and I were down in Australia. You know, we're from there originally. We still have some family there. We were visiting, and uh, a friend showed us a book from the public library that was recently published about the of England. And uh, it's called, I think, That Was the Church That Was. And then colon, How the Church of England Lost the English People. It has two authors. One is a church um, journalist. The other is a teacher uh, training... um, uh, ministers, priests for the Anglican Church. Mm-hmm. And it, it, uh, it's well written, but also, um, it's a sad book. It's written in pain because the Church of England, in the space of a decade or two, they lost, listen, more than half their members. More than mm-hmm. half their members. Why? They were involved in endless debate over the role of women, women ministers, and women bishops. And it just went on and on and on. And the women walked away. And when they walked away, they not only walked away from the, uh, in the clergy, 
they walked away from all those other ministries and teaching and ministering to the sick. All those things that have kept the church going for centuries, they walked away. And the church today, the Church of England, is in dire straits. Financially, less than 2% of the English people go to church on any given Sunday. Right. And among the English, it's less than one-third even uh, arrange for a church burial, a church funeral. Mm. So, you know, it is, I read that book and I thought, wow, this is something yeah. that we have in it. Better, better take a hard look at. Yeah. Um, and uh, just to uh, uh, chain that on to another thought you make in your book is, uh, you visit the concepts of the Nopoloni Jesus and the Nopoloni Church. Uh, do you care to expound on that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's, it sounds a little shocking. So the Nopoloni Jesus, uh, and some people said, whoa, that's pushing it. But I think it, it's, uh, it's not something I'm tr- that I'm trying to shock people with. You know, I spent a lot of time my life... Um, teaching uh, the life and teachings of Jesus and writing about him. And then a couple of years ago, I wrote a book which eventually was published in two volumes called Jesus of Nazareth. Mm-hmm. And uh, work on that book on Jesus, you know, concentrated work for a couple of years, I'd say profoundly affected me. You know, Jesus as he was. I think that the biggest error current in Jesus' day was that of hypocrisy. That's a word he used many times, more than any other word. Right. Uh, the religion of his day and the religious leaders in particular were just caught up in uh, making rules and in looking good and uh, jockeying for the top place. But it was a sham. It was a mm-hmm. game. Yeah. It was a religious game. And Jesus called them out. And his strongest words were against religious leaders. But these games that they were playing. Now, the common people, you know, were just out of it. The leaders looked down at the common people. They didn't have time to observe all these hundreds and thousands of rules that they had set up. Only, only, the, only these other guys, the scribes and Pharisees, had the time and the means to do it. And they looked down in, on the people. In fact, you find that there was, I think it's in John 7, where they say, this people who, know, who don't know the law, they're cursed by God. The way they regarded the people. Now, Jesus took on that system head-on, okay? Mm-hmm. He called it out. It was baloney. It was hypocrisy. The word hypocrisy means acting. Right. Someone in a drama who plays a part, he's a hypocrite. Because he's hypocrites, a hypocrite, an actor. These guys were actors. And so, yeah, uh, 
the Jesus of the Gospels, I believe, is a no baloney Jesus. He doesn't play games. And the church we want will be a no baloney church. Will be authentic. Right. Um, and, and one of the, the ways that uh, you exemplify this, it's something that's really uh, near and dear to me, um, is your, your work with the interfaith community. Um, now, yeah, I, I've, I've been lucky enough to live in a, in a city that, you know, has uh, all kinds of Christian churches, but also synagogues and, 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 and mosques, uh, or they call them masjids. And uh, I, I've attended... Uh, their, their services and I've got to say that I've really enjoyed being able to dialogue with them you know just as as people and learning from each other um, and you spent a lot of time working with uh, other Christians from other denominations as well as uh, as Muslims and um, how important do you think it is for us to engage in this sort of dialogues listen the way I see it is this if we're going to be followers of Jesus, what other option do we have? Jesus associated with everyone. Okay. Right. He associated, and he was criticized for it, you know. He was a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And sinners involved uh, common people. It involved um, prostitutes. Um, he was a friend of Samaritans. The Jews hated the Samaritans. They hated tax collectors. Prostitutes were the lowest of the low. Jesus associated with them all, with all of them. For Jesus, the door was open to everyone. No walls, no barriers. So, friend, um, in terms of being a follower of Jesus today and our church claiming to keep the faith of Jesus, to be a follower of Jesus. You know, we have to take seriously his example, what it, the way he lived, the way he taught. Now, who would be the tax collectors and sinners in American society today? <laughs> well, I suggest it would be people like the Muslims, would be uh, uh, people like the LGBT people, were considered by many so-called good um, Christians, good Adventists, these sort of people who uh, we don't want to associate with. Right. Okay. If you're a follower of Jesus, there is no one that you won't want to associate with. This may shock mm -hmm. some of your ears today, but uh, just think it through. If Jesus were here today, who would be the publicans and sinners that he not only talked to, but sat down and ate with them. Okay, shared meals with them. Yeah, um, and just to that effect, uh, I think how important is it for the church to take a role in uh, an active role in some sort of you know in these issues, like you say, um, because many times what throws off my generation, the millennials, is that uh, the church's official roles almost seem kind of uh, neutral um, or, you know, just as bystanders. Uh, we don't take an active role in advocating for the LGBT community, for, for women, for immigrants, and all that stuff. It's, it's, 
it's very passive. Now, do you think that, that it's important for the church to take an active role in these, or is it more up to the individual? Very, very good question. Very tough question. Okay, and it's um, I'm sure our leaders certainly come and struggle with this question. Individually, mm-hmm. I think it's clear. As individual followers of Jesus, we must do what we can. Mm-hmm. I would urge anyone hearing this to think about actively, you know, intentionally trying to make friends of someone who's sort of um, out there on the margins. Poor, right. homeless, Muslim, okay. Someone who is on the edge of society individually, and we can do that. Now, what about publicly? That's much, what I mean, publicly, corporately, as a body. That's a tough one because, you know, there is so much need in the world. There's so much to be done. Um, and we can just get caught up in social issues and concerns and all our energy go into that and all our means. And I'm not sure that that's what the Lord wants us to do. On the other hand, if we are silent, if we don't speak out on occasion, I think we are derelict in our duty. Mm. We must, uh, and we have been pretty quiet. Now, in one area we do speak out uh, traditionally, and that is the area of religious liberty. We'll defend people whose liberty is certain. We'll go to court as a friend of the court with people who are not Adventists, but whose liberty is threatened. We've done that and we still do it. And I say, amen. Let's keep doing that. But I think we need to go further. There are people in our society today whose liberty is threatened, whose very existence in this country is threatened. Immigrants, uh, right now, you have um, hundreds of thousands of people Mm-hmm. Um, who were born, who were brought here, you know, as children and uh, grown up here, they know no other country, and now they're threatened with deportation. I think the Adventist Church should not be silent on this. I, I, I think we should not be silent. I think we should speak out uh, mm-hmm. in favor and support these immigrants who frankly are worried. Many of them are now in positions where they are serving the country, paying taxes, contributing much to our society, but yet they are in mm-hmm. fear of being run out. And, uh, you know, we need, right. we need to at least speak out and need to think as churches, individual congregations, should we be doing something for these people? We feel threatened. Yeah, I, I think I I like to tie that with the uh, with with your uh, comparison with Jesus' ministry. Uh, you know, going out of our comfort zone, out of our our uh, our, our desert, and into the uh, you know in, into the city where the grimy things are happening. Um, how vital do you think our involvement with uh, people outside our comfort zone is for uh, the Adventist Church moving forward. 
Well, again, friend, we're going to be followers of Jesus. We don't have any any other option. <clears throat> going to be serious followers of Jesus. Jesus got his hands dirty, if you like. And we must also. Now, in fairness, already Advent are doing a lot of things, okay? We're out mm-hmm. there in the, the messy world. Our, um, our medical ministry is doing wonderful things, okay? And we happen to live here at Loma Linda, and the ministries that go out from Loma Linda are just marvelous, and they, they just thrill my heart. They are truly following uh, in the footsteps of Jesus. Remember, he spent most of his time in healing ministry and helping people, much less in actual speaking, in preaching and teaching. So we are doing a lot, um, uh, but you know, um, we can never say we've done all that we could do because there's so much need. It seems like every year the need gets worse and worse and worse. Many of our churches are involved in feeding ministries for homeless. Some of our churches in cold areas of the country, they open their doors. Their basements, uh, so homeless can have a, a warm bed at night. I know mm-hmm. this is happening in a number of places. Yeah. Things like this are truly, truly um, appalling in the footsteps of Jesus. And I take my hat off to everyone who's involved in this. <laughs> yeah, agreed. Um, there were a couple other things I want to talk about, but we were past the half hour mark. I don't want to take more of your time here. So I I just wanted to touch on uh, one of your last points in the book, um, and you took it out of I guess the the seven habits of effectual of highly effective people, uh, you know, keeping the main thing the main thing. Wow. Um, yeah. What what is this main focus that we should keep, uh, you know, in front well, of us? Well, for me, it's, it's very clearly what. Um, the Apostle Paul tells us in First Corinthians chapter 15, where he says, he tells the Corinthians, I passed on to you what I received. But first, or of first importance, you can translate it, Christ died for our sins. That's the, that's the main thing. Christ died for our sins. He was buried and that he rose again. That's straight out of Paul. I'm not making this up. He says that's the main thing. So, um, of course, there's a lot of instruction in the scriptures. We must take it all seriously. But we better be sure that we don't overlook the main thing. Otherwise, we are majoring in minors and minoring (laughs) in majors. (laughs) Wow, yeah. That that was such a good way to put it. Okay, so after 2015, especially among my generation, there were many who were left uh, almost sort of, you know, hopeless. Um, what hope do you see that we that we can share um, that can, you know, with, with my generation? What what sort of things can you do you see that we can share with them to make them feel more hopeful? Well. 
um, over the last couple of years, Nolan and I, Nolan, my wife and I, have become acquainted with some developments in which we find great hope. See, for years I've been greatly troubled by the loss of young people, young adults, who grow up in the church and walk away from the church. Some of them walk away as soon as they leave academy, get out of an average school. Others go through college. They go through graduate school, and they stick around, but eventually they just drift away. Our losses are enormous, you know, and, and they're distressing. But the Lord is not dead. His spirit is alive and well. And I believe um, God's spirit is working, and uh, some new things are happening in the Adventist Church. You know, we are a church of present truth, present truth. And that means that God doesn't want us to be stuck in the 19th century, the Adventism of the 19th and even 20th centuries. It was good. It was wonderful. And I'm not saying we throw it all out. Not at all. Don't throw out the baby with the bathwater. Mm -hmm. The changes are, are coming and have to come. And and I see see them already. I'll give you a couple of examples, all right? Okay. Um, um, two years ago now, 1916, we were invited to speak at the One Project in Seattle. Mm -hmm. I'd heard of it, but I really hadn't taken interest in it much at all. You know, I sort of keep out. I don't try to be, um, you know, <laughs> rushing around following DVDs and internet stuff, all stuff right. that's happening in the church. But I'd heard a bit about the one project, didn't know much about it. So I got this invitation to speak in February of 2016 in Seattle. Mm -hmm. I thought, ah, I heard about that. What about it? So what did I do? I went to their website mm -hmm. and read, you know, well, what is this? Well, it's, it's, uh, it's not an organization. It's, it's like a, a happening. You know, it has no organization. It has no paid staff. It has no headquarters. It's just a group of young ministers, young adult ministers who got together and started this one project. What is the one project? Well, the one is Jesus, making mm -hmm. Jesus number one in the Adventist church. That's what it's about. It sounds so simple. You know, hey, is that all it is? Yes, that's all it is. But listen, Jesus is a big all. If you make Jesus all, you've got everything. Jesus is a big all. So, uh, I said, yes. Well, we went to it. And we were so blessed by that. Mm -hmm. Here's a group of about um, 1,200, 1,300 people in the uh, hotel there in uh, downtown Seattle. Yeah. And um, uh, young adults. But all ages, there were people as old as we were and older. But mainly twenties, thirties, forties. I thought, wow, you know, 
And the, the enthusiasm, the energy, the singing, the liveliness, I thought, wow, this is incredible, what is happening in the Adventist Church. And um, since then, um, I've been involved with the young, with the one project uh, somewhat. They invited me to go with them to Australia and to speak there, be one of their speakers. I spoke um, in Sydney at their gathering and then over in Perth at mm -hmm. another gathering. Then last year in um, San Diego, they invited me to speak again, so I was there. And they're coming up next month, February. The last one. The final one, yeah. yeah. San Diego again, I'll be there and one of the speakers for the final one. So yeah. that is one thing. That that is um, that is to me is a sign of hope. It really is. Um, it, it's a very positive Adventism. Mm -hmm. I heard there's no criticism, no criticism of uh, doctrine, no criticism of leaders, no criticism of the church. It's all focusing on Jesus and what He means for our life today. And uh, boy. We are going back. We are sorry that it, it's winding up. We want to see what ideas they have for follow-up. But, you know, realistically, these guys who are running it, it was mm -hmm. all add-on to their work. They all have major responsibilities. Right. And so they were doing this totally, you know, raising the money, setting it up, organizing it, you know. These guys have families, they've got a, they have lives, they have kids, you know. Um, so I thought inevitably they could not continue this indefinitely as it was. And mm -hmm. so I'm not surprised, I'm sorry, but I'm not surprised. And <laughs> so that's one thing. I, I'll tell you another thing now, um, and this is very much related to the one project. There are churches, <clears throat> around the division, all over the place. I don't know how many, but there are churches where young adults are not only attend, but they love to attend. Mm -hmm. um, and some of these churches, and I'm not exaggerating because I've seen it, they are friends, they are overflowing. Now, not only are members of the University Church here, Norma Linda, wonderful church, mm -hmm. great music, but quite often we go to a church about a mile and a half away. It's called Crosswalk Church. Okay. The pastor, senior pastor of that church is Tim Gillespie. I guess he's in his 40s. He's mm -hmm. one of the organizers of the One Project. One Project, yeah. Yeah, but his church, listen, they have two services um, in the morning, and for the second service, they have an overflow venue, and then they have started now an evening service. For that service, you'll drive up and you'll say, where did all these cars come from? We're going to find a place to park. You know, if you're not there early, you gotta you gotta scramble to find a place to park. And then second service especially, you won't get a seat if you wait till the program starts. 
So mm. that we were there just the other week. We're out in the hall talking to people. It was 10 minutes before the program. And they said, we better go in there or we won't get a seat. And, uh, <laughs> and so, no, I'm not kidding. And, yeah. and who are we sitting next to? There are teenagers there. And um, there are people in their 20s, college age. I'd say the average age is probably early 30s for that program. Um, it is so welcoming. You know, I don't know how many people come up, people we don't know at all, you know, just greet us and smile. And they're not official greeters. They're just people who are there. Mm. It is warm. It is friendly. And, you know, talk about community involvement. Twice when we've been there, they've had the blood bank van right on site. And they urge people, don't go home without giving blood today. Mm. Now, is that real or what? Okay. Right. So the preaching is great. The preaching is biblical. Now the music is loud. Some of the saints would say this is, a, this is terrible. You know, um, they do advertise if you need the earplugs, earplugs, earplugs are available. Uh, just let us know. It's loud, loud. Um, but boy, the people stand and they stand along the way and sing and uh, they write into it. And then the preaching is preaching of the word always based on scripture and uplifting Jesus. Now that church, I don't know, in two years it has gone from a membership of about 150. I don't know how many it has today. It has at least 1,500 to 2,000 people who attend. Wow. I'm sure they have more members, but uh, there are people driving out from Los Angeles to attend that church. We met some. Mm. No. They drive out yeah. three times a month. You know, some thousand oaks they drive out there. Why? Right. Because something is happening. So I, you know, I am hopeful. I really am. The Lord is not going to let this church just fade away. And the young people of the church, like you, Pablo, you know, you're going to make this church into something that will work for people of your age. You want a church that accepts everyone, right? And right, you want yeah. a church, what, church where people get their hands dirty. Okay. Not just talk, 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 but where people walk the walk. Mm-hmm. You want that, and it's happening. Some of the saints have a problem with it. They have a problem with change. Most of us have a problem with the new. You know, it's simply human nature. Yeah. But, you know, if the Lord is in it, it's unstoppable. Mm-hmm. All right. Thank you so much for, having, for taking the time to speak with me. I really enjoyed it, and hopefully we can uh, speak again sometime. Well, you're most welcome. Thank you for listening to The Advance. Please join us next time.